Well, we are going to uh, continue in our uh, series through the book of John. If you'll recall, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we started kind of in the middle of John and covered uh, those chapters which dealt with all the events leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then last week we talked about what happened after the resurrection as Jesus restored Peter. And now this week, as we continue in John, we're going to loop back around all the way to the beginning, starting at John 1. And over the course of the weeks, we'll work our way forward to where we started before. Clear enough? Fair enough on that? Okay, then we're going to start in uh, John chapter 1. And really, to appreciate the beginning of John's gospel, you have to go back to the beginning. Not just the beginning of the gospel, back, but back to the very, very beginning, to Genesis 1. And that's where we find these words that are probably really familiar In the beginning, God. The very first words in the Bible, in the beginning, God. That is, before the beginning of human history, or the history of this earth, or the history of the universe, before any of that, God existed. And I mean, for the purposes of this conversation, it doesn't really matter uh, if you believe in a literal six-day creation in which God created everything that is, or whether you understand, or whether you believe that God, over the course of hundreds of millions of years, used various natural processes to create everything that is. For the, for the purpose of this discussion, it doesn't matter which way you believe on that. What matters is that back before any of that happened, back before any of it began, God existed. And further down in that creation account, we find these words again and again and again, and God said, right? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be plants, and there were plants. And God said, let there be creatures, and there were creatures, and on and on and on. We find here that God's creative act, it's a speaking act. It is the word of God, his spoken word that conveys his power. And creation comes into being because of God's spoken word. We have to understand that. And then when we get to the, to the pinnacle of God's creation, when he creates mankind, we find this description. Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. And here we find something that's very interesting about God. That God, as he prepares to create humankind, he speaks in the plural. He speaks of an us and of our. See, apparently, according to this passage, the eternal God is and always has been an us. And theologically, this is the beginning point of a doctrine that's known as the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, but it's the doctrine that God has eternally existed as one God in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that idea has its beginning right there in the opening verses of Genesis. And all of this, all of this understanding, it's in the background of John's thinking as he begins his gospel. That is, as he begins his telling of the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, that's where we are today, is his prologue, his beginning of that gospel. And in many ways, John's prologue, chapter 1, it's like the opening argument in a trial. Right? When the attorneys begin a trial, they don't just launch into giving evidence but they begin with an opening statement where they kind of make, a, uh, they make an agreement with the jury. They say, here's the story we're going to tell you. We're going to present evidence, and the evidence will lead you along a path which will ultimately lead to this particular conclusion. At the very beginning of the process, they say, here is where our story is going. And that's what's happening in John chapter 1. 
He's giving us the outline of what his whole gospel is really about. You see, in his gospel, John will be unapologetically presenting a case. A case that Jesus, who was the Jewish rabbi who was put to death by the Romans at the request of the Jewish religious leaders, that he was, in fact, the human incarnation of the Word, the eternal Son of God, who has become the Savior and makes eternal life possible for all of mankind. That's the case that John plans to make. And we know that this is his intent because... Later in his gospel, he puts it very, very plainly. He says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John writes his gospel. That's why he tells his story, is that we might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. What John believes is that in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, something completely unique was taking place. Something that had never happened before, something that will never happen again, was actually happening in Jesus. And that is this, that in Jesus, deity took on human flesh that the Creator actually stepped into His creation and became a part of it. So that the young rabbi who traveled all over Israel performing miracles and talking about the kingdom of God was at the same time 100% God and 100% human as well. And the fact that He's 100% God and 100% human, uh, that reality makes Him uniquely qualified to offer and to provide Uh, eternal life to all who will follow him. That's the case that John's going to make across all 21 chapters of his gospel, and he's letting us know right up front. So how does John introduce the case? How does he begin? What's What's his foundational point for this case that he's going to be making? He begins this way. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus begins his, or John begins his outline of his case by introducing us to the Word. He reminds us that the Word has always been there and is eternal. That the Word played a central part in the creation of everything. He suggests that the powerful life of that Word is the light of all mankind and declares that there is no darkness capable of overpowering or overshadowing the light of that life. See, the first point of John's prologue is this. Jesus is God. Plainly stated, Jesus is God. It's clear from the picture that John paints that this word, this creative, life-giving, light-shining, darkness-overcoming word is completely, unmistakably, and entirely divine. The word that John introduces us to is, in fact, God. He is the second person of the three people that we refer to as the Holy Trinity. It's as if John is saying this. Look, before you understand anything else about Jesus, 
Before you understand, before you understand anything else about him, he was God. Before he was anything, before he was a teacher, before he was a revolutionary, before he was a philosopher, before he was a great moral teacher, a noble example, before any of those things, he was with God and he was God and he continues to be nothing less than God. And this is the first point in John's prologue. What's his next point? He continues. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The second point of John's prologue is that this eternal world word actually came into this world. That the word entered the very world he had created. That he became a character in the very story that he was telling. The creator became a creation and with the irony that the other creatures didn't recognize it and certainly did not receive him. And one of the reasons this was such an important point to John was that in the day and time that John was writing his gospel, his story, um, there was a teaching, a heresy that was going around that was finding its way into the church. And John wanted to counter this because it wasn't true. And the teaching of that time was this, that while, while Jesus was in fact God, that he was that second person of the Trinity, the teaching was he wasn't actually human. Oh, he looked human and he seemed human and he appeared human, but that, all, that was all just an impression that he managed. He was, if you will, a super high-def hologram of a human being that was so convincing that all of his disciples bought it and believed it. That was the teaching that John was countering. He wanted us to know that the Word really was human, that the Jesus everybody knew was more than a mirage, more than an image, but that he was um, the real deal. He was a real person. And John's interest in showing us that Jesus was 100% human is every bit as important to him as showing us that Jesus was 100% God as well. It's so important, in fact, to John that when he starts writing letters to the churches, in the very first letter to the church that he writes, he writes this at the very beginning of it. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. John just continues to hammer that theme again and again in a few short verses that what he's talking about when he talks about Jesus is someone that he saw up close. And someone that he listened to with very human ears. Someone that his hands touched and, and that he felt. He said that Jesus was real and entirely human is, is no mistake. It's an inescapable conclusion and reality. And that was very important to John. The Jesus that John is going to present to us in his gospel. He's not a simulated human being. He's the real deal. The eternal word really did walk this planet. And he experienced things like joy and pain 
and hunger and triumph and disappointment and loss and all the other things that go on that go along with a full human experience. He was 100% God and at the same time he was 100% man. Now, we gather from the passage uh, in the prologue to John's Gospel that not everybody in Jesus' time understood that or recognized that or even believed that about him. And actually, in that regard, John's speaking to an audience that's not so different uh, from our audience today, right? Today, many people don't even understand that Jesus claimed to be God. And even amongst those who understand that Jesus claimed to be God, many cannot bring themselves to believe that that's actually true, to come to accept it and to receive it and to believe it. And that actually brings us to a really, really important part of John's prologue to his gospel. He says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. See, John presents Jesus as the eternal word. And he presents Jesus as an incredibly real human being as well. And here he suggests that the effects of what Jesus did And by that I mean the salvation and the eternal life that result from his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection to eternal life. That according to John, these things are given specifically to those who receive it, who believe it, and who accept it. What John is saying here right at the beginning of of his case is this. He's saying, I'm aiming to show you that God came down from heaven and that he clothed himself in human flesh. And and that he suffered in order to make it possible for you to participate in the light and the eternal life that he is offering you for free. And he's saying, John is, that if you believe my case, and if you receive Christ, then eternal life will be more than a possibility for you. It will be your reality. Let me ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, it means a lot of things. Among other things, it means this. It means to believe that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was in fact the eternal word of God as John described him. Are, are you telling me that in order to be a Christian, I have, to be, I have to really believe that Jesus is God? Yeah, I'm kind of telling you that. Actually, I'm telling you what John said, and John said that if you want to get technical. But what John said was this, was that the right to be called a child of God belongs to those who receive Jesus and believe in his name. And that statement runs somewhat counter to the prevailing culture and and, uh, way of thought that is around us. It is a fairly popular thing for people of all faith systems and beliefs to say, I believe that Jesus was a good teacher. I understand that he had a profound influence on Western society and culture. His philosophy is something to be admired. His ethical teachings are noble and admirable. Many people affirm these statements, but do not come to the point of saying, I believe that he is God. Listen, John doesn't say that to as many as appreciated Jesus' ethical teachings, to them he gave the right to be children of God. John says to those who 
believed in his name and received him, those received the right to be called to become children of God. He reserves it for those who believe in the name of Jesus and receive. And that includes both the human name Jesus and the divine name, the word that John describes for us in his prologue. There is absolutely no question that the people who knew Jesus the very best and understood him the most completely were his disciples, the ones he spent three years leading and teaching and mentoring. And in their ministry following Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, the disciples were unyielding in their proclamation that Jesus was God himself in human form. In fact, with the exception of John, all of them were put to death specifically for their belief in that very thing, that Jesus was God. When given the option, each one said, I would rather give up, I would um, rather endure the most torturous, painful death than, that you can devise for me. I would rather do that than to give up my belief that Jesus is God. That's how central this idea is to authentic Christian faith. If you take away the teaching that Jesus is God, you no longer have Christianity. It is that crucial. So am I telling you that to be a Christian you have to believe that? Yes, that is what I'm telling you. Now, don't get me wrong. This is America, and you have the constitutionally protected right to believe anything that you want to believe, right? We are free to collect and assemble ideas and traditions from every place on earth that we want to and even combine those with, with, ma- with ideas that we make up ourselves. And we have the absolute right to formulate our very own faith system, positing whatever we want. We're free to do that. And, and we're free to com- and completely entitled to believe that Jesus was nothing more than an influential figure and an exemplary moral teacher, but that he was just a man. We're free to believe that. But don't confuse that with being a Christian. Don't confuse that with being a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, we're allowed to believe what we want to believe, of course. But we can't just redefine what Christianity is and has been for 2,000 plus years. Because from the time of Jesus forward, his followers have held to what Jesus proclaims in his prologue, and that is this that God has made a place in heaven for those who believe that Jesus Christ is God and are prepared to live with the implications of that belief. That is at the heart of Christianity, and outside of that, we're outside of Christianity. Now let me ask, what are the implications of the belief that Jesus is God? Well, there there are plenty, but I will talk about three real quickly. Faith, hope, and love. If we come to the place where we believe and are willing to declare with faith that Jesus is God, then it is time to put our faith in him and say, I trust and believe that what he did on the cross was for my salvation, that I can know God through him and and through my faith in him that way. And that is a powerful implication of believing that Jesus is God. Can I just say this? One expression of that faith is baptism. We have a baptism coming up uh, May, I think it's the 19th, and it's time to start getting signed up for that. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, someone who has come to the conviction that Jesus really is God, and you've not yet been baptized, your next step is to take a public step of baptism in which you are saying, I am a follower of Jesus, and that is what I believe, and I want to walk in his power in that. If that's you, and you've not been baptized, 
please uh, stop online or stop by the information counter. They can get you signed up because baptism is a powerful expression of the faith that comes as a result of believing that Jesus Christ is God. Second, I would say this. Once we become convinced that Jesus really is God, the way the Bible says he is, in addition to faith, we find hope. And that's in part hope for eternity and a destination in heaven that awaits us, to be sure, but it's just as much hope in this life here and now that come what may, no matter what the circumstances, there is a God who walks with me and dwells within me and will carry me through the circumstances of this life as well as preparing me for the next. And in addition to faith, And in addition to hope, the final and perhaps the most important is love. Jesus said this to his disciples. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You see, it is one thing to make a very strong doctrinal statement that Jesus Christ is God. And if we're going to follow the truth of what the scripture presents, we do have to make that very strong statement. But there is something to be said for the manner in which we make that statement, right? If we want that statement to resonate and to have any credibility, it has to come with love, which Jesus himself describes as the highest mark of being one of his disciples. If we are content simply to draw a line in the sand and say, we believe that Jesus Christ is God, there's the line, are you with us or are you against us? And if you're not with us, you're against us and get out. And unfortunately, I think in our earnest desire to hold true to Scripture, we sometimes come across that way. But if we're really going to be disciples of Jesus, if, if we believe that He is God and so we're going to follow Him as closely as we can, and He says that the highest mark of that is love, then even our, even our declaration that Jesus is God has to be one that's marked with open arms and an invitation and a heart that is clearly about love first and everything else after that. So, to be a Christian, do you have to believe that Jesus Christ is God? Yes, that's what the word means. But let me just say this. Here we are at church. We assemble on a weekly basis here and throughout the week in various places as well. Do you know, and I'm speaking, uh, I'm speaking to those who are believers in this moment. Folks, if we are doing our job, if we're loving people the way God loves them in the way that we're called to love them. If we are inviting them, partly into church services, but more importantly, if we are inviting them to investigate and get to know Jesus the way that we have come to know him, if we're doing our job, do you know what that means for our time assembled here together on any given Sunday? It means that we would be this incredible mix of some people who are absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ is God and they want to worship him, and other people who don't believe that, but who have been invited along by people who are loving and caring and, and now are here to experience that. And that in this room on any given weekend, if we're doing our job, we will be populated by those who are ardent followers of Jesus Christ and people who have not yet made up their mind or made a decision about whether they do or don't believe that Jesus is God. And you know what the reception must be for all of us? Love. We will never stop declaring that Jesus Christ is God. But at the same time, This has to be and this will be an absolutely safe and inviting and comfortable place for people who don't share that opinion yet to come and learn a little bit more about it. And if there's anything about our doctrinal purity that ends up pushing people away because they don't agree with us yet, that's not on them, that's on us. 
It's a lack of love which shows a lack of understanding of who this Jesus is that we claim to be following. Does that make sense? Can we do that? Can we live a life, and not just here at church, but at work and in our families and with our neighbors and with whomever we come in contact with? Can we live a life so that the first thing encountered is is such genuine love that there are some honest questions about what's the truth that stands behind that? So that an invitation to come know Jesus resonates because it's backed by a reality of love that has been encountered very powerfully. That is our call. It is a high calling. To not just declare the truth like a weapon, but to live the truth in love primarily. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the, the message this morning is direct and clear. It's that Jesus Christ is God. And yet, Lord, we're not content just to feel like we stand on the side of truth so that we can say the right things and spout the correct doctrine and just let it fall where it may. God, we're a people who need the power of your Holy Spirit within us so that the way we live our life demonstrates a love which resonates with the truth that Jesus is God. Lord, where our declarations and our proclamations have been offered in a kind of manner that pushes people away and leaves them uncomfortable and unwilling even to explore, God, would you forgive us that for taking such pride in our proclamation that it takes a higher place than than love? And God, would you even in this moment, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit new and fresh? God, would you pour out your love upon us so that it can flow out through us? So that the things that we say are true about Jesus Christ resonate because his love is evident in our life. God, we're not equal to that task left to ourselves, but by your strength we can do it. And so, God, we pray, would you cause us to become more like you in this regard? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.